Thank you, Jesus. Well, um, really what I'd like to share with you tonight is a continuation of what we've been talking about, the themes that we've been on this afternoon and even before, from um, Ephesians 1, about all things coming together as one in Christ, and Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4 that we talked about this afternoon and how it is that we can come to the unity of the faith, that we can become the expression of the, the perfect body of Christ, the mature body of Christ. So that's a, that's a theme that seems to be running throughout these past days, and I'm not going to be talking about those scriptures again. Um, but I, I think that really my, my subtitle here, Overcoming Sectarian Tradition, is another way of saying finding unity. Overcoming the barriers that prevent God's people from coming together into the unity and the power that results from that unity. So I'd like to start tonight um, with a familiar story in John 4. If you want to go there with me, you're welcome to. This is the story of the woman at the well. Thank you, Jesus. Now, the context of this is that John the Baptist has been making waves, and all Israel has been going out to see him in the wilderness. People are changing. They're responding to what has been, I would say, the <laughs> at least the freshest move of God, if not the only move of God in centuries. John the Baptist has appeared on the scene. God is moving, and the staid, traditional religious people are very nervous, but they can see that he is making waves. And so uh, the story we talked about earlier has already transpired. The Pharisees also have come out to him. They've asked to get in on it. And John doesn't respond as some would today and say, great, we can add a few more to the tally of how many we baptized. He's looking for the substance of the heart that would show a readiness to be part of this unified work that is beginning through his preparatory ministry. And so those who have already been accepted before as the religious leaders are a little bit um, perturbed at what's happening. And that story, of course, ends up unfolding throughout the Gospels, that they are not always super excited at the wonderful things that God is doing. And um, they're worried about their place in the matter. They're worried about how people are going to view them and so forth. So Jesus has cleansed the temple already, and that made more waves. Nicodemus has come by night, as we heard a couple of days ago, and, and the Pharisees are wondering, is there some way to collaborate here? And yet the goals seem a little different. And uh, then there's been disputes over ceremonial washings and the, the baptism thing, as John tells us in the chapter before. Uh, there's been disputes going on there. And then chapter 4 opens and it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. It almost seems as if Jesus realizes, uh-oh, <laughs> this is going to get these guys going again. They're going to feel jealous that even bigger waves are happening, and they, they weren't really let in on it, and this is going to cause trouble, and he's not, he's not prepared to deal with that yet, and so he moves on where he feels like reception may be better. So he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. 
A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. I think it's interesting to contemplate how many encounters with the Lord can begin with an invitation for us to serve, for us to engage and participate and offer a cup of cold water to the prophet. What would God do if we would engage every time we had that opportunity? For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Baptist, ask a drink from me, a Presbyterian woman? (laughs) Oh good, you're following along with me. She's astonished that we're even going to have a conversation because something has been running deep. The division has been running deep for a long time in the culture here between the Samaritans and the Jews, and we're going to talk more about that as we go. And it says here, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But here comes this Jew named Jesus, and he seems willing to have dealings with the Samaritans. What is happening here? Well, Jesus is just being more inclusive and tolerant than everybody else, right? Jesus understands that it makes no difference how you worship, where you worship, what you believe. Jesus is bringing the freedom that none of it matters anymore. Is that the revelation that we're getting here? Okay, well, let's look for what it is then. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? My great-grandmother was a wonderful Christian. And, you know, there are just traditions that have been around for a long time, and I'm wondering if you're going to acknowledge that. She's, in effect, asking him, are are you conscious of the great tradition? Because whatever you seem to be proposing seems to be deviating from what we've always done. And it's worked for a long time. Give me that old-time religion. It was good for Grandma. It's good enough for me. Amen. The verse that says it was good enough for Paul and Silas is better. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. We've got a tradition here that's been going on for a long time. Are you greater but who are you? You're, you're what, 30? Are you greater than all of this history and prestige and acceptance for centuries and generations? Who do you think you are? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. You're on, you're on some kind of maintenance program. But God is trying to do something new that's going to bring a new power and life that's going to bring a different kind of unity. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. We know from his comparison, when we compare this to chapter 7, where he says something almost exactly the same. John tells us he was talking about the Holy Spirit that had not yet been poured out because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But those who believed in him were going to receive it. So we know he's talking about the Holy Spirit here that's going to be water that's going to come from God, but it's going to to take up residence and become a source of power and life that's going to give grace not only to us, 
but to others. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. You know, first impressions are usually really good. When God offers you something new and powerful and wonderful, and we say, well, that sounds great. It'll be less work. It's, he's going to do it all for me. That sounds wonderful. Let's do it. So Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Uh-oh. He's looking for something here, isn't he? Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus is asking her, so how's it going in the family? <laughs> I think in some ways you could say that he was probing to see what the soil conditions here were. Remember Brother Zach talked to us about need. Faith and honor coming together to make a place where the word of God would be received and bear fruit. He's wondering, what is her, what is her angle here? What is her, what is her approach to what's happening here? What kind of honesty does she have? The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. So in that, you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She has a keen sense for the obvious at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but then immediately, she points straight back to this impossibility that we could even be having this conversation. I mean... <laughs> I mean, it seems like you've got something going here. You've obviously got a gift and everything, and I'm not arguing with that. I'm just saying, our worlds don't really meet here. This is not what I'm used to. This is not the tradition that I grew up in, and, and it's not what I've believed for a very long time. And I just don't, I don't see how this is going to work. So she goes immediately to this and says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She, there's, this is Mount Gerizim that's looming beside them there in Samaria. It's in the middle of what's now the West Bank. There's still some conflicts between the Jews and the Samaritans, I guess. But he says, um, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So he makes an endorsement of the Jewish perspective while at the same time telling her that neither what's going on here nor what's going on in Jerusalem presently is what God is ultimately looking for. Amen. And when we say, take his endorsement of the Jews here, who are the Jews that he is talking about? Is he saying salvation is of the Pharisees? Is, that what he, is he saying salvation is of a racial group? We know, of course, that that's not what he's saying. That there is, we're on the cusp of deeper revelation here. And that the Jews, Paul would say, the Jew is not one who is circumcised outwardly with the circumcision of the flesh, but one who is circumcised inwardly with the circumcision of the heart. Amen. He would write to the Philippians, For we are the circumcision... Who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. You could almost say that that verse is an encapsulation of the gospel. No confidence in the flesh, that's repentance. In Christ Jesus, 
That's baptized into his saving body. And worshiping God in the spirit, the power of the resurrection and anointing in our lives. Amen. So who are these Jews? Well, they're the ones who know who they worship. This is what he's endorsing about the Jewish perspective. You remember we talked earlier about the Greeks who viewed God as an abstraction. We've talked about the legalistic approach to God, which is uh, tell me what the rules are so that I can do them and, and avoid meeting the cop. Remember? Amen. He's saying the way the Jews have understood, the Jews, the faithful throughout the centuries have understood that this salvation is a relationship. So be a good passage for our salvation definition. Salvation belongs to the Jews, for they know who they worship. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You can think of spirit and truth like form and content, like the, the form is the glass and the water is the content. The analogy has been given before that if you want to make it across the desert, you need both a container and the water in it if you're going to be sustained for that journey. An empty container does you no good. Water that you have no way to bring with you does you no good. Amen. We need the form and the content. That's why we've got to be entrusted into the form of doctrine. Amen. And then that form, we could say, is the form of the body. It is the truths that shape the body of Christ and the relationships therein. But the body without the spirit is dead. So without the animation of the spirit, we still are not the true worshipers according to Jesus' definition. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ when he comes. He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Then his disciples come and they're marveling that he talks to a woman and so forth. <clears throat> and then it says, the woman then left her water pot and went back to the city to tell everybody what she'd found. Sometimes the details in the Bible give you a picture, don't they? She's come to the well to draw water. She criticizes Jesus because he doesn't have a vessel. Let me tell you how we do this in church. And then when she starts to recognize something is going on, this guy is making me a promise. In fact, he's making me a promise in spite of the fact that he knows that I've, you know, he knows what my life looks like. This must have sparked some hope in her. And she leaves her water pot. It's like, forget the old vessel. The new wine isn't going to work. We just leave that one there. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I think the Lord loves it when we get so excited about his truth and his promise that we just forget about the old forms. Thank you, Jesus. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could it be the Christ? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the history of Samaria that got us to this point where we have this seeming impasse that Jesus seems to be offering to bridge. This impasse between traditions and cultures and, and whatnot. This story goes back almost a thousand years, about 950 years when Samaria got its start. And this idea that... You don't have to go to the temple to worship. You can worship up on the mountain that somebody else has said was good enough. So it goes back to the division of the kingdoms of Israel. When Rehoboam has gone south and the kingdom it fractures. And because of the sin that is in 
the leadership. Of course, we know, we heard earlier, the whole pattern is not the perfect mind of God to begin with, but God's trying to work with them. The pattern of having a king and all this political stuff. So God's trying to bear with them, but just as surely as he had told Samuel, you tell the Israelites that if you get a king, this is going to how, how it's going to go. Now it's happening. In just three generations, it's happening. And Rehoboam's going to lay heavier burdens on him than ever. And then God tries to work with him, and he calls Jeroboam. The prophet goes and anoints him and calls him, and he has to flee to Egypt to save his life because of Rehoboam's jealousy and so on and so forth. God has called this man in hopes that some type of remnant can be preserved. And so then, as time goes by, he has the opportunity to come on the throne. And, uh, and this is, actually happens during Solomon's time, but after he, he then comes back, because he was in Solomon's court, he then comes back, and when the kingdom divides, Rehoboam takes the ten tribes and makes the northern kingdom of Israel, in, in, which became known as the land of Samaria, because they built the city there and called it Samaria. So Jeroboam has been called by God, but he has a problem, and that is that once he embarks upon the journey that God called him to, he gets nervous about his role in the thing, and self-preservation kicks in. 1 Kings 12 and 26 says, Now Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Okay, isn't this how it always goes? Jeroboam is worried about his own skin, about his own position, and so he tells the people that are following him, you know, I'm just going to try to help you guys. <laughs> Didn't we talk earlier about heaping up teachers that will itch your ears? There's a reason why people itch your ears. It's for, it's for self. So when self comes in and leavens Jeroboam's calling, he starts lowering the standards that God has put in place and telling everybody else, this is for your benefit, that we're going to just modify a few things about the patterns that have been given in, in this word because it's a little too, you know, strict. We'd hate to fall into legalism and think that there's only one place that you can worship. We need to just broaden this out. God understands. He tolerates all kinds of viewpoints on things. And we can do something else that's just as good. We'll do it in his name, and nobody will know the difference. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines on the high places, and he made priests from every class of people. No more having to look for the one that the Lord has sent. No more having to recognize God's callings. Let's just work this out. We'll find some guys that are good at it, and we'll do it. He made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. And the Lord is faithful again. No sooner has he done this than you remember the, the Lord sends a prophet up from Judah to prophesy against that altar that he built in, in Bethel. Amen. And prophesies about Josiah who's going to come and tear it down, and that surely does come to pass. But this thing became a sin, and it became known as the sin of Jeroboam. This thing plagued Israel for the rest of the kingdom. Every king is measured according to whether or not he was willing to deal with the sin of Jeroboam. And even the ones that did a lot of good things, more often than not, never did quite deal with this sin of Jeroboam, which was, in essence, you, you don't have to go all the way. You just, you just don't have to. So this went on for, let's see. 
200 years in the northern kingdom until Samaria was carried away captive by the Assyrians as a judgment of God against the problems there. Now, an interesting thing happens when they're carried away captive. Those people are never heard from again. They don't appear again, as far as I know, in the pages of history. They're completely absorbed into the kingdoms where they go. But after they're taken out, we read in 2 Kings 17, it says, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and several other places, some of which I can't pronounce, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. So he takes the land that God had intended to be the promised land, and he brings transplants in that were born and raised in Babylon, and he puts them there. This was a common practice from, with ancient kings. It was to prevent future rebellions from happening, that if, if people were dispossessed and you brought in new people, they didn't feel the same kinds of loyalties, that same sense of, oh, God, we should restore the kingdom. They didn't feel that as much if you brought in transplants that didn't understand the roots. Amen. So he brings in these foreigners, and they begin to dwell there, and they did not fear Yahweh. And so it says that then the lions and the wild beasts in the land started to eat them. They recognized that this was a problem. So uh, they sent back to the king and said, this is not working. There appears to be some, uh, something is against us here. And um, so we think it must be a spiritual problem that needs fixing. And so we need somebody to come and tell us what the minimum requirements are so that we can get over this stuff. Because this... this uh, Lion depredation is, is getting old. And so the king of Assyria says, well, send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. So he gets one of those, those guys that has been carried away captive and let him go dwell there and he can teach them the rituals of the God of the land. So then one of the priests comes and he sets up shop in, in Bethel and he teaches them how they should fear the Lord, it said. But it said, however, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities where they dwelt. And so it goes on to say, they feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. So they're doing the same thing, really, that Jeroboam was doing. They said, okay, well, we're going to acquiesce to some... We, we can tell he's God. We got that. We know that some minimum compliance is, seems to be necessary. Amen. Let's apply the Judeo-Christian ethic enough because we can see there are blessings that come from it. We can acknowledge that it's good for the culture. But let's hang on to all the rituals of the nations from which we came. And really, that's who we're going to serve while we do pittance to Yahweh. So that's the situation that gets set up there. Now, fast forward again another 300 years to the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, as we've been hearing, and I won't repeat all of that, but he's got this burning in his heart. we got to go back. Now, he's from Judah. Okay, This is from the remnant from Judah that has since been carried away captive as well. And he's got this burden in his heart that he, we've got to see this thing restored. So he comes back to rebuild Jerusalem. He starts making waves. Amen. And guess who's there? The Samaritans. They're there, and they want to be in on it. Wow, this is incredible. A restoration that hasn't been happening in hundreds of years, seems to be happening. And um, it's pretty neat. They seem to have the approval of the king. We'd like to be in on this too. So in Ezra 4 we read, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of Yahweh, God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. 
And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Amen. But we just read how they were doing that and with what mindset they were making those sacrifices. It was not the same heart that motivated Nehemiah and the remnant that came out of Babylon. But they want to be in on it anyway. Look, I mean, look, you guys are coming to restore this. We've been here the whole time. Where have you guys been? We're already doing it. So let's just work together. <laughs> Amen. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may be, do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to Yahweh God of Israel as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus king of Persia. They started doing everything they could think of. Well, if we're not going to be acknowledged, if these guys are following this same old rigid of, of disallowing people who only want to go halfway, and they're not going to allow us to, to, they're not going to acknowledge that what we're doing is just as good as what they're doing, well, then obviously we need to kill them. Or at least stop them. Because the message is convicting us. So let's kill the messenger and restore peace. <laughs> Amen. It was a pretty fast turn. Doesn't it strike you that way? I mean, you, you almost, you're tempted to feel sorry for him. These guys are like, oh, wow, something's happening. God is moving. I want in on it. And they say, uh, I don't think you have the same spirit. Let's kill him. <laughs> it makes you, it almost makes you think that perhaps Zerubbabel and Jeshua rightly discerned the heart <laughs> of these people. Amen. Now, Nehemiah and company did not show up and tell these people, excuse me, we need to kill you because we're going to do something great here. God's moving again and we're done with you. They, they, they didn't come threatening. They're not coming with an attitude of, get out of here. This is our thing. They're just saying, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? I mean, we've got to have some kind of baseline of the same heart here. And we're a little suspicious of your attitude. And they proved that they were right. So, slander starts. Sabotage starts. Distractions and, and, and you know, why don't you, let's come have a meeting. We just want to talk about some of the stuff that you're doing and everything, you know. And, and Nehemiah's like, we are not doing that. <laughs> We're not doing that. We've got to build this thing. And we've got limited time and limited grace. And we've got a commission from God and, and we, we, we can't, we've got to work with people who have the kind of heart and burden that brought us out of Babylon. Amen. And if you've got that heart, let's do it. But, but if we just want to quibble over things, I mean, you know, or if this is a trap, which is what it was, which you're luring us into. So it's distractions. And then they report them to the authorities. What would these guys have done if they'd have had the internet? <laughs> they would have been so happy to have that. It's so easy to, to take pot shots at the wall building on the internet. Thank you, Jesus. So this struggle continues between those who, who want to go halfway and are offended that they're not being acknowledged and those who say, we're going to rebuild it according to the pattern that God gave it. We're going to restore it just like it used to be. And the struggle continues with this adultery with the world, even in the camp of the Jews. Ezra and Nehemiah record that they're struggling with these Jews who are marrying foreign wives. And they're having to deal with that within their own camp. That there's still this sense that adulteration with the world is, is going to be permissible in this project. In fact, there's a Jew there who was the grandson of the high priest... That is, Nehemiah mentions him, that he rejected him because he married Sanballat's daughter. And he was the grandson of the high priest. His name was Manasseh. And he marries, the, the, uh, he marries Sanballat's daughter 
and I think it's Josephus, but I read in a history about this where they recount how uh, he was confronted about this, and he was even considering making the break with his foreign wife in order to continue in the building project that he had been engaged in. And uh, he was considering that. And then Sanballat basically said, if you will um, come over to our side, um, we'll take care of you. And you don't have to divorce your wife. Now, for those of you who are watching on the internet, this is not Dan recommending that you divorce your wife to be part of the kingdom of God, okay? We live in a, di we live in a different dispensation than what we see is being enacted here in the types of radical uh, cutting off that is happening. And yet, there is something to be learned from the spirit and intent that these people were pursuing the truth and the vision of God with. That they were willing to hate father, mother, sister, brother, children, wives, in order to do the will of God. So this guy, Manasseh, history tells us, is the one who built the temple of the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim that the Samaritan woman was talking about. So he builds a temple up there at the same time that Nehemiah is rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. This guy is constructing a temple up there. Now, there was a later temple that was built. I can't remember. It was like built in 200s or something like that, B.C. Um, and for a long time, the archaeologists said, you know, that maybe this didn't really happen up there at the same time. But then they dug a little deeper and found remains that date from exactly the same time as Nehemiah of this little temple that was being built as an alternative to Nehemiah's building project. They're doing their own project over there in Samaria. It was destroyed in 130 BC, but it was still the Samaritan's place of worship in Jesus' time, as we read. Okay, so this is a long-standing conflict. This tells us what is going on when John 4 says that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. This has been this way for a long time. And yet Jesus reaches out to this woman. It's as if Jesus has the faith that something new is going to bring the power that can overcome a millennium of sectarian division. Thank you, Jesus. The hour is coming, and now is. Amen. So, um, we fast forward back to Jesus' time. Let's look at the disciples' view of the Samaritans. They were astonished when they came back in John 4, weren't they? Uh, that he was talking to a woman, and I presume the Samaritans, and then everybody in the town. She goes and tells them about it. John tells us, she goes and tells them about it, and they come back, and then they, they believe also, not just because of what she said, but because they felt it for themselves. When the anointed Christ is there, even the Samaritans are feeling something different. And yet, in, uh, later, in Luke 9, Jesus is again going to come through Samaria. And we encounter a similar problem. Now, the context of what happens here, is, if we start in verse 46, is there is a dispute among the disciples about who would be the greatest. And Jesus is instructing them and telling them, unless you come like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom. You've got to become like one of these little children in order to be part of this, for the least will be the greatest. And John's answer to that is, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbid him because he doesn't follow with us. Okay, something is deeply ingrained here that uh, if they're not doing it right, forget about them. Okay, and Jesus is not really impressed with that approach. So there's this, this sectarianism runs in two sides. You see, when we look at this Samaria versus Jerusalem, it's not like Jesus is endorsing the Jews, because they got the details of doctrine right, and the Samaritans got the details of doctrine wrong. He endorses the Jews because they understand that this is about relationship. This is about knowing God. 
Okay? So here come some people who are casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but John says, but they're not in our church. <laughs> and Jesus says, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Okay, Jesus is not interested in trying to shut down other people. Jesus is inter interested in forbearance that allows room for people to grow into the truth. He's not compromising. He's not saying, oh, it doesn't matter uh, what they're doing. It doesn't matter if it's mixed with all kinds of other things. It doesn't matter. He's just saying, watch your attitude. So, and then this the next sentence is, now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Here's the Jewish perspective. We've got to go all the way to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. There's still a perspective problem in the Samaritans. If this guy isn't going to acknowledge that what we're doing is just as good as anything else, then we're not going to receive him. The disciples had been sent ahead to prepare for Jesus. I don't know if they used the same wisdom and grace that Jesus had used. Because when he was in Samaria, they received him. The whole town. But now he's going through some other cities. And the disciples go ahead and they say, the Lord is coming. And they say, is he going to acknowledge that what we're doing is just as good as what he's doing? Because if he doesn't acknowledge that, then he's not really a Christian. And so then, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? They've got it wrong. Let's roast them. <laughs> There's ways of purging the church, you know. We're going <laughs> to... I mean, John is the, the beloved disciple. We, we always look to him as this one who's so tender in his feelings and everything. But even John is, is he's, ready to, to, he's, he's ready to just, let's fry him. <laughs> but Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Jesus doesn't say, well, let's just go to Samaria anyway. It doesn't matter what those guys are doing. That's not his point. He's saying, what is your heart about this matter? This is not the unity of the Spirit that is long-suffering and patient and bearing with one another in all gentleness and lowliness until we can come to the unity of the faith. You don't know what spirit you are of. You've got a spirit that causes divisions. You've got a spirit of contention. You may be right in your assessment that there's a problem over here, but how are we going to reach that need? What is going to be God's solution? Jesus still has the faith that the hour is coming. Don't roast them. These guys could get it. They're, they're not any different stuff than, than you, disciples. And if the right anointing and the right word and the right power and grace from God moves upon them, they could receive it. Don't you feel it? Amen. So we need to stop dismissing each other, giving up on each other, and certainly not trying to attack each other. We can attack the, the, the falseness of the position. That's different than attacking the people. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The hour is coming when we're not going to worship over there and we're not going to do it 
in Jerusalem the same way you guys are imagining that you've got it right either. But the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, who will have a heart for the truth, who will hunger after righteousness and be filled. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus believes that they will receive the anointing in the timing of God. So Jesus continues his journey. He arrives in Jerusalem. There's a cross waiting for him there. That's often what makes us not sure that we want to go all the way to Jerusalem. Paul was told the same thing about going to Jerusalem. If you go there, they're going to kill you. So we feel the cost of it. And we're supposed to count that cost. And if we're unwilling to pay it, then we're not worthy to be part of the project. But if there's a willingness, there's going to be a grace to follow him outside the city and bear his reproach. So he knows that a cross is waiting for him there. He also knows that a resurrection is going to take place on the other side of that cross. So all of this unfolds. The death the resurrection. And then on the other side of this, I'm skipping a lot of history here, but on the other side of this, we see Jesus giving a final commission to his disciples. And in his last words, Samaria is still on his heart. Do you remember? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Samaria gets a special mention. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' heart, it doesn't matter how long you've been stuck in your sectarian tradition. God has a way out. Thank you, Jesus. And then... It comes to pass. Does the promise come to pass? It does. So if we go to Acts 8, you can go there too if you want to, but you don't have to. This is the last passage that I'll read to you. Thank you, Jesus. We go to Acts chapter 8 and we see this promise being fulfilled. It happens actually through persecution. The church is being dispersed because of persecution that's coming at Jerusalem. Then Philip, I'm starting in verse 5, Acts, 5, Acts 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Hearing and seeing the miracles that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. Maybe even some spirits that said, we're not going that far. <laughs> that can be an unclean spirit, I, I would propose. Came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame, unable to take the next step. They were healed by what? By the anointed word of God. Spoken through his witness, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Don't give up on people until they've had a chance to hear the word of God. Amen. Amen. The truth spoken in the Spirit. Spoken in love. Thank you, Jesus. They all heard it. Everybody in the city of Samaria. And there was great joy in that city. I don't even know if they knew that they almost got roasted. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. We discussed this this afternoon. I'm an apostle, and you should be listening to me. Okay, It's the ones that are claiming to be something great that we ought to be a little worried about. Claiming to serve a great God. Claiming to love his wonderful and great truth is one thing. Claiming to be someone great is another thing. Okay? So he's been astonishing people for a long time. 
It says, they all gave heed to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. So this, here's a guy abusing authority, apparently. He's got gifts, but he's got some problems. I don't know exactly what was going on there, but he's still serving the gods of the nations, just like the Samaritans have been doing for a long time. Now, they've got some kind of religion worked out there where they're all paying attention to him. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And then Simon himself also believed. Thank you, Jesus. And when he was baptized... He continued with Philip, and he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs that were done. Simon himself is able to acknowledge, this is God. He believes it. He gets baptized. He sets out on the journey, but he's got a problem that soon surfaces. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. You can almost imagine the word that was going through. I don't know if Philip wrote a letter or what happened, but you guys wouldn't believe what's going on down here. I mean, people are, all of them, they're receiving the word of God. They're, they're receiving the truths of the kingdom of God. They're getting baptized. This thing is incredible. None of them have received the Holy Spirit yet, but God is at work. Amen. So it says, now the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So they sent Peter and John to them. This is the same John who wanted to roast him. <laughs> Amen. Sometimes you got to eat some things from your past. Your zeal without knowledge comes back to bite you. <laughs> so John gets to be the one to come back with the message to tell him, guess what? There's a different kind of fire that can fall from heaven upon you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Who, when they had come down... Philip met him at the door and said, Guys, this is my church. I started this thing. These people are all following me. God has used me. Who can deny it? What are you guys here for? We laughed because we're nervously aware that that's too common, isn't it? We don't want to work together. We don't want to acknowledge gifts or callings of God in other people, especially if there's a possibility they might have more than I do. Amen. So Philip has preached this whole revival, and no one has received the Holy Spirit, which this is a very interesting scripture for those who believe that the Spirit comes up, you're filled with the Holy Spirit automatically when you believe. It already says they are believed, and none of them had received the Spirit yet. Others believe that you receive the Holy Spirit automatically when you're baptized. But it says they were all baptized and none of them received the Holy Spirit yet. No, when Peter and John came down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. No sign of jealousy from, from Philip about the, the workings of the various gifts of the body here. No sign of it. Philip is just, we can only assume, rejoicing. Hallelujah. As more of the body comes into play, more power, more revelation, more grace is being poured out on his church. Thank you, Jesus. 
Now when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. It's interesting that whatever was happening to people when they received the Holy Spirit was so powerful that although Simon didn't ask to buy Philip's miracle-working healing power, when he saw people receive the Holy Spirit, he wanted it. I want the power that you have, that when I lay my hands on somebody, they receive the Holy Spirit. Peter, of course, rebukes him. What's going on here? Simon is jealous. That old thing in him that used to revel in how people looked up to him and thought he was something great has resurfaced. Because here comes, here comes a move of God and Peter and John are making waves and I want in on it. There's got to be some way that I can work myself into a position here. How about some money? Peter rebukes him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. Does that remind you of Nehemiah? Sorry. You don't, have, you don't have a part in this. You don't have even a part or a portion in this matter that God is doing in the kingdom. Why? Because your heart is not right in the sight of God. This is a heart problem. When the heart is right, you've got a part. It, it's, you don't get to choose it. It's the gift of God. But you have a part. You have a portion in the workings of God if your heart is in the right place. What's the solution? Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray to God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So Simon says, please pray for me that this will not happen to me. We don't know what happened to him. He seems a little passive in it. He wants them to pray for him. He's just been told to repent, and he wants them to do some praying in hopes that fixes it. I, I'm a little dubious about that. But we're not told what happens. But it says, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. You have to wonder if there was, if there was a lady in that church that had had... Five husbands. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Notice also the willingness of the people in Samaria. They receive the word of God. They believe it. They're baptized. They're on the track. And then here come these other guys that they haven't met before. And they say, now it's time to receive the Holy Spirit. And they say, are you saying my baptism wasn't valid? Are you saying I'm not really a believer? Are you saying, what, how did you say it the other day about Nicodemus? This guy's old. <laughs> Jesus is telling him, you guys start all over again. You haven't even been born yet. You know? But that's not the heart that we see in these people in Samaria. They're saying... We can't believe what God is doing. You mean there's more? <laughs> Hallelujah. Let's do it. That's the heart that brings unity. It's, it's not like, what's his name in, in, uh, in John's epistle later? No, uh, who won't receive the brothers? Diotrephes. He warns them about Diotrephes because he says, he won't receive the brothers. Because he loves to have the preeminence. Now, I don't think he's trying to say that everybody ought to receive whatever wandering Simon the sorcerer comes along in their church and put him in the pulpit and say, this guy's got the word of God just like we do. I don't think that's what John is trying to say. He's trying to say instead, there's something wrong when someone loses their openness and begins to cloister off and say, These are, this is my project. That's the problem here. But when the heart is right, it's not our project. It's God's project. It's his city. It's his temple. It's his body. It's his sheep. Amen. 
how did you say it before? We have no vested interest in, in the matter. Like, now, if I, if I invest in these people and I love them and take care of them and, and, and help teach them and everything, y'all are going to let me be the pastor, right? That's what's got to disappear. That's when our heart is not right, is when we are either grasping for position or trying to defend our territory because we're a little scared about the next step that God might be speaking to us. But the heart that brings us into oneness with one another is not just saying, well, now we got to line up a bunch of basic doctrines, and if we can get all those lined up, then we can call you brother. That's not what he's saying. To me, this is saying what makes for unity is the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't say the Spirit of unity. <laughs> he says the unity of the Spirit. What Spirit? The Spirit that says, God, you're going to lead and guide us into all truth. When the Spirit of truth has come, He will lead and guide you into all truth. And as long as people have an ear and a heart for that, we're brothers. We're believers. We believe in the same thing. We believe in the same God. We have a relationship with the same Spirit. Now the Lord is the Spirit, Paul said. That's a way of saying that our Master is the Spirit. When the anointing is there, could this be the Christ? When the anointing is there, and God is moving by His Spirit, we say, Amen. I may have misunderstandings. You may have misunderstandings. None of us has a monopoly on the truth. But we've got the same heart. We've got the same spirit. Amen. And even if there are some who, who disagree or don't understand, we're going to bear with them. We're not going to feel the, the, the necessity of immediately persecuting them and casting out their name as evil because we think they got something wrong. Amen. We're going to love them. We're going to pray for them. We're going to keep reaching, believing that the hour is coming and now is. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So let's have the, the heart of Apollos that we heard about earlier. Let's have that heart that says, it doesn't matter what God's done before. He's not trying to tear down what he's done before in my life and in the lives of my fathers. He's trying to build upon it and honor it and take us the next step. And as long as we're there and we say, God, I'll go all the way to Jerusalem. I have counted the cost. I don't care if they disagree with me. I don't care what I lose. This means everything to me. And this is why we say that repentance is the missing essential to bring unity in the church. I think about Romans 6. I know I'm not gonna, I don't want to try to force this to say something, but it strikes me how he says, we have been united together with him in the likeness of his death. There is nothing like dying to your ambitions, dying to your fears, dying to your pet ideas to unite your heart with the people of God and unlock the outpouring of power that comes with that unity. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, God. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of being part of your work, God. Oh, God, help us maintain a heart, God, with no ambitions. Amen. With no throttles, no holds, no stops. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, Lord. Take us all the way. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Does anybody have any questions or something on your heart, song, whatever? We can just follow the Lord. Brother Howard. Can we get a mic to Brother Howard? When you're sharing all that, I think of what we shared this afternoon about Ephesians 4. But it sounds to me tonight inevitable. He says, maintain the unity of the Spirit until you come. I mean, it, you can think of it as maybe there's a chance. Amen. But it's saying, if you maintain the unity of the Spirit, you're going to get to the unity of the faith. We're going to come to see eye to eye. God is not schizophrenic. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We're going to see it. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Well, you made me read one more scripture. 
I thought about reading this one before. I'm not going to expound on all of this. There's some incredible revelation in this that Brother Blair has written about, but thank you, Jesus. I'm thinking of Isaiah 52 because you just quoted it. I had written it down. Awake! Awake and put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Sit down, O Jerusalem, and loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. This is a prayer for the, of faith for the captivity that's going to return to Zion. And he goes on down and he talks about the, how they went into Egypt and then Assyria oppressed them and this, that, and the other. And their, his name was blasphemed. But he says, my people are again going to know my name. And he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Jesus said to Jerusalem when it rejected him, no more will you see my face until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But when we can say it, the face of God turns towards us. Who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices, and with their voices they shall sing together. Harmony. Amen. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back the captivity to Zion. Thank you, Jesus. It's going to happen. He's going to bring together in one all things that are in Christ. Do you believe that it's actually going to happen? Hallelujah. I mean, I feel what Brother Howard is saying. We, we, it seems so tenuous sometimes. It can seem so small. Everything that we read in this book always has these tenuous, small, impossible-seeming Nothing beginnings. And it grows into a force that cannot be stopped. Amen. I feel it's night too. I feel a renewed sense. It's going to happen. Amen. There is the camp, Brother Ossie told us about, of God's purpose and destiny, and it will not be thwarted. The only question is, are we going to be part of it? If we have the right heart, we have a part and a portion in the matter. Thank you, Jesus. Break forth into joy. Next verse. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has laid bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So depart and go out from her and touch no unclean thing. It's a call to an exodus, and we can be part of it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.